We need the industry to develop guidelines and values and professional ethics. Hello, everyone. This is Justin on from Between the Headlines, bringing you the stories that are shaping society. Today, we'll be discussing free speech, misinformation, and content moderation on social media platforms like Facebook, which is now playing a major role in political discourse. To investigate this debate, I interviewed Gilad Edelman, a journalist who covers technology and politics for Wired. Let's start by talking about the role that social media platforms like a Facebook or a Twitter play in politics. Do you think that these platforms either explicitly in the form of an agenda or implicitly through their algorithms have some of some form of political bias? That's a good question. I think that my answer is basically no. So when it comes to intentional bias, um, these companies are under a tremendous amount of pressure from both sides of the political spectrum to treat both parties neutrally. And that, that pressure looks different depending on which party it's coming from. So Republicans have really seized on the idea that social media is biased against conservative viewpoints and Republican politicians. And then there's all these rumors about things like shadow bans and, and other ways in which they're supposedly secretly discriminating against them. But then Democrats look at social media and they say, look how many of the top performing accounts are conservative, are conservative media personalities uh, or conservative YouTube channels. Um, so both sides have something to complain about. Now, I think it is definitely true that most of the employees and executives at these companies are liberal. And I think it's fair if you're conservative to worry about how that is going to shape the policies that they design. Because even if you're trying to be neutral and trying to be fair, everybody can be influenced by their, you know, the viewpoints that they hold. Uh, but the idea that they have a political agenda, I think, is, is really far-fetched. Their agenda basically is to make money. Okay. Then let's sort of extend that to talk about corporate regulation of their content. To what extent do platforms want to intervene with whatever's on their platform? And if so, or if not, what do those decision-making processes inside the company look like? Well, we know that they don't want to. We know that because for a while, for the, you know, the early years of their development, they basically didn't. Um, and each phase of social media platforms cracking down more and more aggressively on various forms of illegal or harmful or controversial content has sort of come kicking and screaming. So it's it's been the result of some kind of public outcry, some kind of backlash, some kind of pressure from government or, or civil society. So we know they'd rather be totally hands-off, but that has just become unsustainable. And that that change has happened, especially over the last year and a half or so. I mean, we we it's hard to remember how much more hands-off even in you know mid 2019 
a company like Facebook or Twitter was when it came to you know, labeling false information or, um, you know, intervening or applying warning labels to stuff posted by politicians. So they, they avoided doing that for a really long time. And, and now it's kind of becoming unsustainable. So to your question about how decisions are made, you know, I, I'm not there in the, in the boardroom, but we do know that it's a, it's a mix of factors. It's, you know, there are conversations that are happening in private between the leaders of these companies and powerful people in government whether it's the White House or Congress. Um, there's also, you know, a lot of lobbying and communication that takes place between not the, not the you know, CEO of a company, but people who work on their public policy and they're in touch with, with people in government. Um, they're also in touch with, you know, members of the media and with, you know, the, you know, the likes of Fox News or the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. So there are a lot of there are there are lots of non-public conversations. Another source of influence is their own employees. Recently, we're seeing this phenomenon where the employees of companies like Facebook or Google are unhappy about how they perceive the company to be behaving or the role that they see their company playing in you know, certain political controversies or issues around discrimination or many other things. And sometimes that internal pressure can also seems to influence the decisions that the companies are taking. During your response, you mentioned that the regulation has gotten a lot stricter over the past year and a half. Why all of a sudden is there such an increase? Right. And to be clear, we're, we're talking about self-regulation. So we're talking about the, the, the rules that social media platforms are imposing on their own users and the way they're enforcing those rules. It's been a mix of factors. You know, there's been pressure since really the 2016 election. There's been, and, and then the Cambridge Analytica scandal in early 2018, there's been increasing pressure for platforms to get more aggressive about what is allowed on their platforms. And then the the coronavirus pandemic really turbocharged this because in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic, people realized, holy cow, social media is going to be a place where people are spreading so much false information about the virus, about masks, about whatever. There was just a lot of fear about how um, misinformation about the virus could spread and potentially be, you know, be harmful in the real world. And it was this emergency, you know, it wasn't, it, it was something new and something really unprecedented. And in that moment, the, there was a lot of pressure on the companies to, to act. And they did, they all started doing things, be, being much more aggressive and proactive when it came to pandemic misinformation. And then once they had done that, my view of the situation is it became easier for them to also get more aggressive in other areas, like election misinformation, that was a big one last summer. You had Donald Trump clearly signaling that he was going to, you know, try to convince everyone that vote by mail, for example, is fraudulent. So the platforms developed policies about, you know, certain kinds of lies that you're not allowed to tell about voting and about the election. So I think that the pandemic really opened a door to more aggressive moderation and it showed both the companies and perhaps more importantly the public and government that that this was possible to do. I think COVID is a really great way to 
transition to my last question about social media and politics, because it's one of the issues where misinformation does have great social consequences. Do you think that social media platforms change public opinion, or does it mainly only reflect the opinions that people already hold? This is the, I don't know, trillion dollar question. It's, it's a really hard question. And no one knows the answer for sure. And we'll come back to why no one knows for sure. Um, I, I do think that there people often exaggerate the degree to which social media is changing people's viewpoints in ways that, that wouldn't be happening if we didn't have social media. I think it's 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 kind of natural to assume that just because something is popular on Facebook or popular on Twitter or YouTube, that everybody who sees it must be getting convinced by it. But that's not really how human mind, minds work. We don't just believe every single thing that we see. So, um, you know, I, I actually recently wrote uh, about this exact issue about the, you know, how powerful is misinformation. And I, I mentioned a study that tried to test this by showing people fake news headlines and um, seeing how many people were would rate that story as true after being exposed to the headline. And the results were that um, typically about like something like, you know, let's, I'm going to get the numbers slightly wrong, but it's something like 30 people believed it before they saw it. And after they saw it, 60 people believed it. So that looks like you're doubling how many people believe it. So it's like, oh my God, that's, this is a hundred percent effective fake news. But here's the thing. There were like 900 people in the sample. So another way to look at it is, well, almost everybody, this had no effect on them. So there's like four or 5% of people in this experiment who actually seemed to be influenced by fake news. Well, you know, that, that's just one experiment, but I think it kind I think it's a pretty helpful guideline for how we should think about this. It's probably not true that social media is just brainwashing everybody in the population or you're just like massively shifting people's attitudes and beliefs. However, you know, maybe it is shifting three, four, five, six percent of people's views on a given issue, you know, whether it's through actual misinformation or fake news, or whether it's just sort of the way algorithms amplify certain content rather than other content, you know, that could be happening. And on the one hand, that's not, you know, it's, that's a kind of a small number, but on the, but on the other hand, that can be really significant, especially in politics, because in elections, especially in the United States, because of how our, elect, uh, our elections work, tiny, tiny margins of people can make all the difference in the world, not just for local or, or statewide races, but even for, for running for president. The last two presidential elections were decided by, you know, some tens of thousands of votes in a few states. So even if social media is only influencing a small share of the population, that can still be really consequential. Now, the reason we really don't know for sure is because um, the companies themselves are sitting on the data that would allow us to figure this out with more clarity. Because what you would really want to do is be able to, you know, pull people on their beliefs over time and then match those that polling data 
to what people are actually seeing on Facebook or YouTube or Twitter. Because you can ima- you know, imagine that you had 50,000 people and you were asking them questions every week or something for six months. And then imagine you actually knew what they were seeing on social media. You could match up their change in their beliefs to what they're seeing on social media. And that would be really interesting. Well, none of the companies so far want anybody to have access to that information. So we're left kind of guessing. Uh, at what's inside that black box. One of the great powers, I think, that social media has in terms of public opinion is the algorithm. And everybody sees something different, and the company really is in charge of what you see. You mentioned that the algorithm might be favoring certain things. What might the algorithm be favoring? And does that contribute to some degree of radicalization or outreach culture. So keeping in mind, when we talk about algorithms and social media, we're talking about how does the platform or the app decide what of all the millions of or billions of things it could show you, what does it show you at a given time? And we know that the algorithms are designed to keep you engaged because the way that social media companies make money is by having people spend as much of their time and attention using that app uh, or website as possible uh, so that they can, for, for two reasons. One, so you can show them more ads because the more time you're looking at Facebook or TikTok or Twitter, the more ads you can see. And two, the more you're on it, the more data you're giving back to the platform, which helps it tailor its algorithm further. So there's some feedback there. And given that the way they make more money is by keeping users engaged, that means the algorithm is going to try to show you the thing that it thinks you're going to look at or click on. Um, they're, they're, the companies are a little cagey about whether, it's, whether they really care about, do you just look? Do you click? Do you like something? Do you comment? But we know that they want you there and paying attention. And so how does this intersect with other more controversial aspects of social media, well, there's quite a bit of research suggesting that the most engaging material is not always the the healthiest. So people can be engaged by stuff that makes them angry or by stuff that is sort of negative about their political enemies. Um, And there's a lot of concern that misinformation, fake stories, uh, can be more engaging than the truth, although that only seems to be the case uh, for right-wing misinformation, which is something that a study that I've written about. So that's that's the that's the basic challenge with social media is that the economic incentive, the way they make money, is to keep people engaged. But sometimes that the way to do that is, seems to have kind of antisocial um, consequences. On the note of social consequences versus what their innate incentives might be, to what extent do you think that social media platforms have an obligation or a responsibility to censor or at least flag misinformation or conspiracy theories or hate speech on their platforms? I think it's a that's a really big question. I think there, there, you, you, you can't be completely hands-off. And, and part of that is for, you know, business reasons. Look, like, if you're running a social network, you want people to stay there and have a good time. And 
if you if, if you and I started a new social platform next week, we and, and people started posting, uh, you know, racist memes on there, I think you and I would probably agree, let's shut this down. We don't we don't want this on our site. So, you know, a lot and that's pretty uncontroversial. You know, the, these 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 social platforms have always policed some kinds of content pretty uncontroversially. Stuff like racist material, certainly stuff that's illegal. Um, if you threaten somebody, there could be consequences for that. I think the harder question is um, around policing things that are true or false and what to do about that. Because it can be difficult to draw the line between this is something that's false versus this is something that I disagree with or you're misinterpreting true information. And I think we should be careful about demanding that platforms um, get, get too aggressive about this because going back to our discussion about political bias, if you have a room full of people and they're all politically liberal or they're all politically conservative, they're going to agree on certain things that are uh, on certain so- so-called truths or falsehoods that might actually be, you know, not really objective, but, but matters of political interpretation. So, you know, some amount of content moderation is unavoidable, is, is necessary. The question is how you do it well. And wh- one other thing to keep in mind is that the, this, this debate needs to move past, do you allow stuff up or do you take it down? Because there's a lot of other options that platforms have when it comes to how to deal with, with false or harmful content. So for, you know, for example, they can put, war, you know, warning labels, or they can prompt you to, to uh, do things that might help you make you more likely to um, be skeptical of something you read or not share something that's unreliable. And then there's the algorithms, right? So they have power to, maybe they don't ban something, but that doesn't mean they have to recommend it to you. So there's all these more kind of gray areas where platforms can address these issues, but because they're more complicated and more subtle, and because the platforms are pretty secretive about a lot of what they do, they often don't really get reflected in the in the political debates about it. The platform should have clear sets of rules that you can, you know, that any user can see so they know what the rules are, and then they should apply those rules consistently. That's, that's number one. It's really important to just have transparency uh, and fairness. Like, so whatever your rule is, are you applying it fairly? When it comes to vaccine misinformation, I think it's perfectly reasonable for platforms to say, we're going to punish you if you do this. So Twitter just kicked off Marjorie Taylor Greene, the kind of right-wing wingnut a Republican congresswoman because she just is a repeat violator of Twitter's rules against vaccine misinformation. What I think is important is that I do think the platform should be careful and really only enforce the rules when it's clearly false information. So I do think there needs to be room for people to say, even though I think this is completely wrong, I do think that people should have room to say, I don't believe in the vaccines, or you know, I think that uh, making people get vaccines violates their freedom. Like, I think it's really unfortunate that people believe that, but I think those are people's beliefs. And that's different from saying something that's false, such as, oh, the vaccines are deadlier than the virus itself, right? That is just false. And it's the kind of false information that in a moment of continuing crisis could, you know, 
it, it's, it could lead to real world harm. And so it's reasonable for platforms to say, we're not going to let you say that kind of thing. When these companies try to patrol what is true and false, though, in some sense, they're one protecting their users from being exposed to that. But there's also a case to be made that they're not allowing their users to make their own judgments. And they're also inhibiting on the poster's ability to say what they want to say. So when Facebook tries to become an arbiter of truth or expand the boundaries of their censoring, is that a violation of the First Amendment? Uh, So definitely not, because the First Amendment is about what the government can do. So the First Amendment restricts the government's power to limit Americans' freedom of speech, or I should say the freedom of speech of people in America, because it also protects immigrants and foreign visitors. Um, And so, of course, a company like Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or TikTok or whoever is not the government. And so they're allowed to have their own policies. They're allowed to say, you're not allowed, you know, they're allowed to decide what is and is not appropriate on their platforms. Now, the problem is that some of these companies are so powerful and have so little competition that it can feel like they are the government. So, you know, if, if you're kicked off of YouTube, if you're a video, you know, let's say you're a, you, you want to make a career doing video commentary and you get suspect, kicked off of YouTube. Where are you going to go? There's nowhere else with any, anything like the reach of YouTube. So you're kind of shut out. If you're banned from Facebook and, 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 and Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, there's no other social network you can go where, that, that, where everybody's on it. So, and, and what this speaks to is the problem of monopoly power. So it's, it's probably not a great thing that there's really only one video site where anybody can upload videos and, and easily watch them, right? I mean, there are, little, there are other video sites, but there's nothing even comparable to YouTube. And when you search for videos using Google, the results steer you to YouTube. So that gets us into questions about uh, antitrust. Should the government step in not to tell YouTube what that, hey, you have to allow everybody to make videos, but rather to create more competition so that you can kind of choose what platform you want to use and not be subject to the decisions of just one company. Now we'll move on to, I guess, the big question of this interview, which is, is responsible speech and social responsibility of these social media platforms in conflict with free speech rights because they are supposed to be, I guess, a free speech platform. Um, Or at least from the company's perspective, are those two values in conflict? And and if they are, um, how should they value those? Well, they they certainly can be in conflict, but it's also important to keep in mind that there's, there's no such thing as pure free speech. So even if you take the First Amendment, so that's, you know, what is the government allowed to do? There's all kinds of contexts where the government absolutely restricts what you're allowed to say and communicate in different kinds of contexts. Just to take one example, you know, you go to the doctor's office and the doctor 
says, hmm, you have a sore throat, you should drink gasoline. You can, that, and you do it. That doctor can get sued for malpractice, right? They might go to jail. They might have to pay money, right? So that's, there, there are all kinds of contexts where speech can be regulated. The, 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 the domain where we, we really don't want to see that is when it feels like it's kind of public debate especially political debate, but when it's not like, the, you know, a professional context, like you're talking to your doctor, but it's just sort of, I'm, I'm speaking and I want to be part of public discourse. So in that domain, the more, the more it looks like you're in that domain, the, the more skeptical we are of efforts by some authority to say what you are and are not allowed to express. So when it comes to social media platforms like Facebook or Twitter or whatever, um, the idea that, uh, or, or like their, their decisions to restrict certain kinds of content can come into conflict with the values underlying the, the, the idea of free speech, because the basic idea of free speech is people need to be able to debate and come to their own conclusions and express their own views and you shouldn't have the government but in this case let's say powerful communication platforms picking winners and losers and the question though is is how to strike the right balance because there's no such thing as pure free speech and there is such a thing as pure unfree speech and nobody wants that but what we know is that we need something, some kind of balance there. And what we're seeing is that the, 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 the approach to free speech that's used uh, in democracies besides the United States looks like more of a fit for the online uh, environment than the, than the American tradition, because the American tradition is a lot more absolutist. And that doesn't really work when you're talking about how to preserve healthy communication on these online platforms. Could you expand on what those alternatives, those functional alternatives are? Yeah, it's a little bit, it's a little complicated, but in, 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 the, in, in the international context, you're much more likely to have uh, judges you know, balance different interests. Okay, yeah, on the one hand, free speech, but on the other hand, um, you know, the rights of minorities not to be harassed. Um, I mean, we already, so just to be clear, like, this is already, so in the United States, under the First Amendment, the, the First Amendment protects someone's right to, to be racist. Uh, so you're, you know, I'm allowed to write on my blog something horrible about some ethnic group that's and I that's that is can't the government can't punish me for that. But for a long time, that's not the case on social media, right? It's no one we all kind of accept that you can't just get away with, you know, calling people a, a racist slur on Facebook or Twitter and expect to keep using the platform. So what that means is the platforms are already not applying and have never really applied a pure First Amendment approach. So an approach that says, well, you know, we need to balance speech rights against the rights of minorities not to be like harassed and intimidated. That looks more like a European or, a, or frankly, anywhere besides the US, Canadian, Australian, South Korean approach 
to to how free speech should work. And so th- there are other examples of that um, where you're all, you, you're not the, the system that's used on social platforms just doesn't really look like how First Amendment law typically works. One of the criticisms that especially conservatives, I think, um, levy against that kind of an approach, though, is that once you start infringing on free speech, that's kind of a downhill slope. How would you want to respond to, I guess, by your description, a more absolutist approach to free speech? Yeah, it's. I mean, it, it's really hard, kind of big, messy questions to try to deal with. But the reality is, we're already on the slope. On, on, on social media platforms just are not and never will apply their rules in the way that a judge applies the First Amendment. It, it wouldn't work. They, they can't be free-for-alls. People wouldn't want to use them. Companies would not be happy with their product. There's just all kinds of reasons uh, why that wouldn't work. So it's, it's almost besides the point to argue, should, should we do it the American way or the international way? We're, we're doing it the international way. Do different rules apply, though, to public figures um, versus just individual users? Like for Marjorie Taylor Greene, she is a very high-profile congresswoman, and does that mean she should be more or less subject to enforcement? Great question. So this is something that came up a lot uh, with, with Facebook, because Facebook had this policy where basically elected officials got more leeway to break the rules than ordinary people. And the theory was, well, what they say is newsworthy, so we sh- it's important that everybody get to see what they have to say. And I can't remember exactly what Twitter's stance on this has been, but clearly, at least now, we see them taking aggressive uh, action even against elected officials. So, and, and Facebook has recently shifted its policy on this too. And, and the reason is this, the there, there's an argument that, yeah, what, what public officials say is newsworthy, but that doesn't mean that you have to give them a podium and a platform. And in fact, human rights activists will explain that if you're trying to, if you're worried about real world consequences of what people post on social media, then it's powerful politicians who you should be the most worried about, right? Because if you or I say something on Twitter, not that many people are really going to care. But if Donald Trump or, you know, Jair Bolsonaro, or, you know, any other world leader or important political figure says something, that can be really influential. And so if anything, these human rights people, activists would say, you should actually have a tighter leash on public officials and hold them to a high standard, at least hold them to what the rules say, just like anybody else. And I think that I'm glad that that's the shift that the platforms are embracing because I think there's a, you know, in a democracy, no one's supposed to be above the law. And even though this isn't literally the law because it's not government, it's still a similar principle. You know, everybody should, should play by the same set of rules. Okay. And on that note, was it right for Donald Trump to be banned? Is that silencing what was a very prominent political viewpoint? And on the flip side, would it have been very irresponsible not to do so? Mm-hmm. The Donald Trump ban is just such an interesting case because, I mean, for all kinds of reasons. So the important thing to understand about 
the Donald Trump suspensions from Twitter and Facebook and YouTube is that the key, you have to remember that it happened in the context of actual real world violence. So when the assault on the Capitol began, the, the social media companies were just like went into panic mode or, or crisis mode, let's say. Understandably, right? It was a real crisis. And, and we do know that social media was one way that the rally got organized uh, and that Donald Trump was disseminating his message. So what changed was less Donald Trump's behavior than the way that it was being acted on by his followers. Now, the, the weird thing is that the actual tweets and Facebook posts that got him suspended were far from his worst. And arguably, he was actually telling his supporters to stop rioting. He was just doing it in this bizarre Donald Trump way where he couldn't stop himself from sort of sympathizing with them. And Facebook and Twitter interpreted that as well. He's saying they're great. He's saying he loves them. So that means he's praising the violence. That means this is support for violence. So we're going to suspend him. And I don't know that that sort of analysis of what he was posting is really correct. So if you look at it, if you isolate it just to the things that he was posting that day, I'm not sure that the enforcement of the policy really made sense. But if you zoom out and accept that, um, you know, he, this was somebody who was a repeat violator of the rules, then you can make a case that, well, then those rules probably should have applied to him. But it was, it was a, it's a very difficult case. Let's move on to the conclusion section of the podcast. Um, social media is a tricky case because nobody has that much control over the platforms. Some of it's held by the government, some by the public, and of course, a lot of it held by um, the central decision makers in the company. So, I mean, who should be making these ethical decisions and who can hold the company accountable? This is a great question. So on the one hand, you could say, well, you know, government regulation shouldn't have anything to do with this. You know, leave, leave, leave government out of this. Let the companies make their own decisions. Then on the other side, you could say, that's crazy. Um, you know, self-regulation. We can't let these corporations regulate themselves. It's never going to work. They just want to make money. The truth, I know this is kind of a boring answer, but you need both. So there are things that government, where government needs to step in. And, and that's what we talked about antitrust and, you know, making sure that the market here is competitive. So you don't just have a couple companies that get to make all the rules that everybody has to live by. And it also might have to do with their business models. You know, what are they allowed to, how are they allowed to use, gather and use user data? You know, what, what kind of privacy um, rules do they have to comply with that might make it harder to have a business model that's built on targeted advertisements? However, you also need self-regulation. And, and for, for, for a lot of reasons. First, you know, we've talked about the First Amendment a lot. The First Amendment is going to prevent the government from you know, really micromanaging how social media platforms are allowed to operate, you know, what they're allowed to, what people are allowed to say and, and, and what they're not. And that's mostly a good thing. You know, we, we want government to be restrained from doing that. 
Um, but think, think about another industry. Think about the journalism industry. There are really powerful, like no one makes the New York Times or Wired where I work or any other number of uh, mainstream publications. There's no law that says we have to publish accurate stories. There's no law that says we have to be fair or that, you know, we have to um, inform the reader and not, um, you know, not try to mislead people. That's all just sort of the product of professional norms and traditions and values that have built up over a long period of time. And when you don't have those, journalism sucks, but the government can't fix it, right? And we, we see examples of that, right? We Right-wing networks like Fox News, you know, especially their, their opinion programming, just doesn't observe these norms, right? They're not committed to being fair and honest and ethical, and that's really harmful. And notice that there's nothing the government can do about that. So to have a functioning journalism industry, which is so essential in a democracy, you need an amount of self-policing by the professionals who do that work. So I think we need a similar kind of evolution in social media. This is a much younger uh, industry, a much younger profession, right? No, no one, no one running a social media company when they when they were kids, it didn't. The thing they're doing now didn't even exist. So there, there was, there, you know, they didn't learn, they didn't take social media class in high school where they learned that you need to not be a piece of. Shit. So we, you know, it's it's important as frustrating as it is to sort of you know, hold your breath and wait for the companies to behave better. We actually need that too. We need the industry to develop guidelines and values and professional sort of ethics that are not mandated by government and are not just about making the most money possible. Is there anything that you would like to either share with the audience or any part of your journalism that I haven't covered yet that you would like to share? No, I think you do a good job. Okay, then thank you so much for joining me. It was amazing to have you on today. All right, thanks, Justin. Mm-hmm.